Jeremiah 31. If I haven't met you yet, I'm Dave Dorst. I'm the associate pastor. And it's good to be up here. Uh, John Craigie is a folk singer-songwriter who has a song that I heard called, What Phase Is This? Uh, here's some of the lyrics. Um, it's sort of a talking, singing kind of thing, Dylan-esque. Uh, but uh, here are some of the words. I went through my Legos phase, went through my Lincoln Log phase, went through my baseball card phase, went through my Saturday morning cartoon phase. I went through my Zeppelin phase, went through my reggae phase, I went through my teenage phase, went through my no smiling for pictures phase. I went through my girls are stupid phase, I went through my girls are awesome phase, went through another girls are stupid phase. <laughs> went through my I want to be a teacher phase, it only lasted half a day. Went through my jam band phase, lasted a little longer than it needed to. The chorus says, what phase is this? What phase is this? All we do is change. All we do is change. So how long do I get to keep this phase? John Craigie's not a Christian singer. In fact, he takes the Lord's name in vain later in the song. So don't look it up. But he has humorously paraphrased some biblical truth, in a way. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, one of the great poetic uh, sections of Scripture that people remember. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. These words resonate in my heart, hopefully all of our hearts, as we recognize that just as there are weather seasons, our lives have different seasons in them, different phases, different Chapters where we're working through different things. Our childhoods and our adulthoods bring us challenges and obstacles that we have to conquer then and there. And it's good to be reminded that life isn't always going to be fun and games, right? That may be the phase you're in, summer break. But there's going to be times of hardship and being broken down. But it's also great to be reminded that the difficult and tedious, painful times will not last, will not always plague us. There will be joy. So what season of life are you in? Are you in a time of building up and working hard? Are you in a time of mourning or hurt? Are you in a time of mending and healing? 
Are you like me in a time of waiting and discernment? The first 28 chapters of Jeremiah saw God's people having had an intense season of being broken down. Most of it is warning, but it's leading them to the phase in the life of Judah, of of the Israelites, where they will be weeping, mourning, being judged. But the tone of the message of the book has changed. And here in chapter 31, God sends Jeremiah with a message that it's time to start looking towards a new season. One that will include healing, being built up, laughter, and for those who aren't Baptists, even dancing. (laughs) The judgment images of the first 28 chapters are now reversed into blessings. I'm going to take the chapter a little out of order. I hope that's okay. Uh, I'm going to move things around. I just think it will help us get a better flow of the ideas. Uh, But before I do, let's pray and ask God's blessing. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we understand so that in nothing may we be displeasing to your majesty through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So let's jump to verses 15 through 22 first. And we see the time for weeping and mourning. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed. And I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. If you haven't been with us for much of Jeremiah, its major message, as with most of the prophets, has been shape up or ship out. 
In fact, for those who have been through the Walk Through the Bible seminar, you may remember. It's a way to remember the flow of Scripture with hand motions. Prophets speak, shape up, or ship out. And essentially, God's people, first in the north, and now here in the south, where uh, Jeremiah prophesied, refused to shape up. So he has them shipped out, courtesy of their enemies, Babylon, where they will have an all-expenses-paid vacation, otherwise known as exile, and living as a conquered people in a foreign land for 70 years. And so we see that God's people are going through difficulties. Verse 15, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Who's weeping? Rachel. Remember, back to Genesis, Rachel was one of Jacob's wives, the mother of Benjamin and Joseph. And here she is sort of the figurative mother of all Israel. Rachel is a symbol for all of the mothers who have lost their children to the enemy. And she weeps over them when they're taken away or killed. This passage is quoted in Matthew when Herod kills the, the infants, the children, under two. But God says, stop mourning. There's a, a new time coming. There is hope for the future. Your children, your descendants will return to the land. And we've been hearing this throughout Jeremiah. Verses 18 and 19, I think are really key to understand, particularly if, if you've sort of had a gnawing question in your mind as we've gone through Jeremiah, even as you look at the Old Testament as a whole. And you sort of have a question like, why did God have to be so harsh? Why does he use these ungodly nations to kill and conquer his people? I think verses 8 and 9 really help us grasp what he's trying to accomplish. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored. I relented after I was instructed. This is God's people giving voice, finally recognizing that God had to discipline them to correct them to get through to them. How many of us loved it when our parents imposed strong discipline on us? Or maybe it was a boss or a teacher or some other authority figure. It takes a lot of maturity to look back and say, yeah, I needed that to straighten me out. Maybe a better example would be someone who had been arrested and sent to prison and hit rock bottom, but there found the Lord and said, prison was the best thing that could have happened to me. It stopped me, and God used it in my life to turn me to Him. That's probably more analogous. And we've heard those kind of testimonies. That's what the people finally realized. They had gone so far from him. They had turned to other gods, other nations. 
They had committed grievous sins. Listen, these weren't light sins. At, at different times in, in Judah, Jerusalem's history, they had prostitutes in the temple. They were burning their children to the false god Molech. Okay, these are grievous sins. And then they ignored or they turned on the prophets who confronted them and tried to steer them back to spiritual health. God had been patient, but eventually had to break them down before he could build them back up. So God has brought his people through this time of discipline and judgment and mourning. Now let's get, turn back to the first half of the chapter to understand what God has in store for them with the time for healing and being built up. This is verses 2 through 14. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When God sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O oh Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together. A great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will, will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Okay, there's a whole lot to unpack. Verse 6. Someday there will be a declaration, and it says the watchman will declare. Essentially that, hey, Jewish exiles, it's time to go back to Zion, to our land. God is calling you back. 
Verse 10 says that even the surrounding nations will hear about the fact that the God who had scattered them will now gather them. The people will be released from exile, head home, and that, that company of people maybe marching back, you get this vision. Will it only be the strong and abled body? No, it says the return to the land will be so complete that even the most fragile among the exiles would return. Verse 8 says the blind, the lame, the pregnant women will be coming back. Bring them all, God says. I'll make sure they get there. And God's not just going to release them from captivity and pat them on the back and say, good luck in the future. You know, I, I did enough. I did my part just getting you released. It's all up to you now. God promises he will be a shepherd watching over his flock. He will direct them back, watching over them like a father. Verse 9. And when they arrive in the land, he plans to help them rebuild and thrive. Verses 4 and 5 are worth rereading there. Each phrase starting with the word again, meaning this is how they were before exile. Right? Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planter shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. What a beautiful scene all of this paints. There will be singing and dancing and shouting for joy. They will plant vineyards and enjoy the fruit that comes up. Verse 12 promises food, crops, livestock. Their life shall be a watered garden and they shall languish no more. Everything is being reversed. Right, look at how the text brings out these reversals. Verse 2 through 4. Those who were threatened with being cut down by the sword are now being built up. Verse 4. Did you notice what God calls Israel? O virgin Israel. Because the prophets have been declaring God's word that Israel has been a harlot, an unfaithful people. But now he chooses to see them as pure. Verse 9, their crooked paths of sin are now straight. Verse 12, they go from languishing, suffering hardship and neglect, to flourishing. Verse 13, they go from mourning to joy, from sorrow to gladness. Verse 14, even the priests who were Targets of God's withering criticism earlier are approved of. So let's jump to the end of our passage, verses 23 through 30, to see a continuation of this theme. The time for restoration and replenishment. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. 
And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together. And the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I awoke and looked and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own sin. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Judah and Jerusalem will once again be known as an area and a city of righteousness where the Lord plants his people and watches them grow. Again, God meets their needs, and we see it in three areas, that the physical needs to grow crops, to farm, to tend their livestock, he repeats that promise. The spiritual needs that God will satisfy and replenish the weary souls. And the needs for community, verse 24, that Judah and its cities shall dwell there together. Now, I haven't worked through every difficult idea and verse in this chapter. It would just take too long. But what what do we make of verses 29 and 30? That's an interesting What's all this about teeth being set on edge after eating sour grapes? Um, David Gosdeck explains, The Lord says that his forgiveness would be so great, the opportunity for repentance so ample, the gracious invitation so compelling, that no one would have an excuse to use the old proverb that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, the the children are paying the consequences of the father's sins, of the people that came before. Now, if a person perishes because of unrepentant sin, he has no one to blame but himself. What's the people's response to this amazing work of God? There's actually a short psalm that captures their feelings. Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for us, for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The Lord restored his people, and they greatly rejoiced in him. Now here's the part of the sermon where I work in Avengers Endgame and spoil all of the plot twists if you haven't seen it. 
No, I'm not going to do that. My kids would kill me. The youth group would not be happy. So I'm going to use an old, trusty Middle Earth Tolkien reference. That doesn't give away, well, I guess if you haven't seen it or read it. But after the epic final battle in Return of the King, after the main quest that Frodo and Sam have been on, has been accomplished, Samwise Ganji wakes up, sort of surprised that he's alive, and he's looking at Gandalf the wizard, and he blurts out, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened in this world? It's an interesting question, isn't it? An interesting way to phrase. Is everything sad going to come untrue? We would usually ask, are the sad things going to be made happy? Right? But he asks us, they will come untrue. That it, all that's in the world, that all that's wrong with the world that causes sadness will be rendered powerless and false and ultimately wiped away as if they never happened. The Bible's ultimate message is that God will make everything sad come untrue. That all the evil that God has allowed to run rampant from the fall of Adam to the consummation of all things will cease to exist. Now, Jeremiah 31 is a look at the redeemed, restored Israel who returned to Jerusalem, to Zion after exile. And that was a beautiful restoration, but it pales in comparison to what awaits us. When one day God will bring the new heavens and the new earth together, and this world as we know it will pass away, giving way to a perfect world, to a perfect condition where there will be no death, no sadness, no pain, and no darkness. Now, there are two verses from the passage that I want to circle back to and hone in on. And the first is, first is verse 3, the second half. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Is there any way a human being can claim that he or she will love someone with an everlasting love? I mean, we've got all these songs that we sing, I'll love you forever, baby. But what we really mean is I love you intensely right now, and I have good intentions to keep it up. But human beings cannot promise that because not only are we pr prone to wandering and breaking every promise we make, but we don't know the future and we certainly have no control over what's to come. But God can promise an everlasting love because He knows the end from the beginning and is both Alpha and Omega, and He's sovereign over all things. So God promises the Israelites as a people that he would love them with an everlasting love. And we've seen that this love disciplines and seeks what is best for his covenant people. He promises to continue his faithfulness to them. This is that very uh, famous Hebrew word, hesed, 
that is used all over the Old Testament to describe God's loyal covenant love. Uh, Michael Carr just wrote a book about it. Can't wait to read that. So when we say that it's covenant love, it means that not everyone gets this everlasting love. It's for people who are part of the covenant, those with whom God has initiated a relationship. But the good news is that everyone is invited into that relationship, that covenant. Whether you've been going to church your whole life or this is your first time, or whether you completely understand the scriptures and the theology behind it, or whether you're just starting to understand it, God invites you in. You see, humanity's default spiritual condition is that we're enemies of God, and we're in danger of judgment. And as verse 30 said, everyone shall die for his own iniquity. But now the second verse I want to come back to from the text, verse 11. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. When God wanted to save his people from their exile, from their spiritually dead states, from the consequences of their sin, he had to do two things. Ransom and redeem. To ransom someone is to make a payment, to release someone from some kind of bondage. Mark 10, 45. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was referring to to himself, obviously, the Son of Man. He was saying that he didn't come to earth for other reasons. And then things spiraled out of control and he got betrayed and accidentally got arrested and, and crucified. None of that was an accident, right? Jesus' life and mission from start to finish was intentional. To give up his life as God's great ransom paid to save and redeem his people. We can't pay our own ransom because in our natural spiritual state, we're helpless, condemned, and exiled because of our sin. But Jesus substituted himself at the cost of his life. We can be free. And so when God applies that redemption to our lives, that forgiveness of sin, adoption into his family comes. And we get to inherit all the spiritual blessings of this world and the world that is to come. And we can sit back and say, there was a time for sin and darkness and the penalty of sin hung over us. Now is the time for celebrating and rejoicing because he has ransomed and redeemed us and we are free. He has loved us with an everlasting love and the love that is faithful, a love that will not let us go. We rejoice in that. Take some time to pray silently and then I'll close us.
Lord God, thank you for this scripture passage. Thank you for our study of the book of Jeremiah. That we see clearly that sin has consequences. That you don't take sin lightly. You have to judge it. And we understand your discipline in our lives. You understand, we understand that you are a holy God. And that on our own, we have no hope to save ourselves. And yet, you step in. You provide the ransom to redeem us, to purchase us. Our sins are paid for through the cross, through Jesus Christ. And the great promise of eternal life, abundant life here on earth and eternal life for eternity, that we will rule and reign with you. comes through that. God, thank you for the picture of the Israelites rejoicing, dancing, and once again planting and blessing as you watch over them as a shepherd and a father. It reminds us that the seasons in our lives will give way to the great day of the Lord and everything that comes after it when you establish your kingdom as a picture of the new heavens and the new earth and we rejoice that we will be part of it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.